I can't put shows up. You know, I, I can probably commentate on radio and TV. I'm not sure that there's much else that I could have done with my life. of many of the listeners to this show's childhood and youth. Clive Tilsley, thank you very much for coming on, sir. Best of the childhood. How are you I'm doing? still Clive? going. <laughs> I'm really good, actually, yeah. Um, as good as can be in the circumstances. Um, I feel quite blessed in many ways. Do you think sometimes that we have a, a tendency to, to slightly underestimate the role that a football commentator can have in our lives? Even hearing your voice is quite surreal. Like there's been many guests on the show, but your voice is associated with nearly just euphoria and escapism. Would you know doing your job that this leaves sport, this is cultural? I could spend half an hour answering that question, the role of the football commentator. And um, we are very much a matter of opinion, very much a matter of taste. Um, Barry Davis actually once said, one man's commentator is another man's pain in the ass." But it's... Um, it's it's all you need to say about football commentators, radio, television presenters, weather forecasters, <laughs> whoever. I mean, music, theatre, film. Um, you know, we are we are a matter of taste, and um, you know, one film buff's idea of the movie of the year um, is another's idea of the biggest turkey they've ever seen. And it's certainly true of football commentators. And many things have changed during the course of my time as a commentator. The access to reaction has obviously been changed by social media. You do feel as if your viewers and listeners can pretty much, you know, they can get inside your tablet or your phone. They can pretty much get inside your home. I'm not sure that the impact of the commentator is quite as great as it once was because there are so many of us, because there are so many games broadcast, because there is no longer a voice of football or a voice of tennis or a voice of racing, because so much of the, that content is consumed or was consumed communally before uh, the pandemic. Um, you know, I, I've got four guys in their late mid to late twenties. Um, if, if they're at home, um, they don't hang around with the old man on the sofa to watch a game. Yeah. They get on the pub and they don't come back talking about the commentator because they haven't listened to the commentator. So yeah. I think that maybe some of the great lines from the past, the great, whatever, you know, Wollstone home or Michael O'Hare lines or, you know, whoever you listen Down to. Down goes Frazier, Howard Cassell. Sorry, I, yeah, it, in, a, in a room with a TV set. I think a lot of that is perhaps diluted. Once a year, I, I used to play in an annual event for the British Heart Foundation at a marvellous golf course, Sunningdale Old in Berkshire. And um, I, I was the kind of, you know, P-list celebrity that people actually paid to play with. And I, I invariably finished up with the team surgeons. And every year we wouldn't get halfway down the opening par five before one of them would say, I don't know how you do what you do for a living. And I'd go, what? 
<laughs> what is it with you guys? You routinely cut people open and save their lives every day of your life. I shout out Romanian footballers' names to you know ten million people, and you can't you can't get your head around why I'm capable of doing that. Yeah. Um, it's each to their own. I can't put shelves up. You know, I I can probably commentate on radio and TV. I'm not sure that there's much else that I could have done with my life. Do you think we're losing a passion and authentic interest in sport because there is now an individual nature to how we consume it? For example, we used to sit down and watch the same commentator, same TV, but now some people can watch a half of the European Cup final via Twitter clips that are going up live and everyone's having their own experience with these cultural events and therefore we kind of don't have as much in common about said events, so they're losing their cultural impact. It's evolution. Um you'll meet a lot of people of my age who don't think the game is as good as it used to be, you know, the football to watch. Um, every sport that you can measure improves. Um, you know, people jump higher, jump further, run quicker. It, it only It's only logical to believe that all of these hugely competitive sports do get better, but does that make them easier on the eye? Um, no. And so as they evolve in their own ways, so the provision and the consumption of media is continually changing. You know, my job as a, a broadcaster, a communicator, probably in the autumn of his career, is to recognize all those changes and adapt my style, my content to, you know, what's required. And from time to time, you still get the privilege of calling, um, you know, an England game at a at a World Cup to 20-odd million people. But most of the time, you're probably, you, you, you know, you're probably communicating with niche audiences, audiences that are into whatever it is that, I mean, at the moment, every single game is being broadcast in the, in the Premier League. A lot of people think that's just too much. It's just too much football. You think it takes away from the rare, precious nature of low football. You know, the more of it you get, the, the, the less special it becomes. Yeah, my job is to make sure that every that, that I have the same appetite to the same kind of filling in my stomach as well as the same level of preparation for every game that I do now that I always have done. And at the moment I do. It's interesting just as a, a kind of byproduct of, of the age we're in, quite a few of, of my colleagues are commentating on four or five games a week. And um I get that. You know, most of us are kind of freelance. The work's there. You take it. I think in an ideal world, that's too much. I don't th I don't think the game can become as special to you as it is to the viewer or the listener if you're commentating on four or five a week because they don't have four or five games a week that matter to them um, as it matters when their team is playing. So I think that's a development that we've all got to be a little bit careful of. Do you think that the attachment of PC culture to sport has nearly watered down some of the characters that added to the theatre of what we all love and tune into weekly, such as someone like Brian Clough back in the day who, who wouldn't be acceptable now, or even some of Alex Ferguson's behaviour probably would be much more finable at a higher level nowadays. Do you think that we're putting sports people under too much political scrutiny as opposed to just viewing them as performers that are there to entertain us and therefore minimising the entertainment that we're subject to? I don't have any problem with a reasonable definition of political correctness. Um, political correctness is just an appreciation and a sensitivity to the next person's point of view, their approach, their attitude to, to life, let alone 
a football match. So I think we have a responsibility as communicators to take into account people's sensitivities and um, and not just ride roughshod, roughshod and selfishly over them, the takers as you find us. So that's that's not communication. Where I do have a problem is not so much with the strictures that that imposes as the punishment. I don't like the judgment culture at all. I don't know where it comes from. How can anybody be quite so sure about stuff at the moment mm. as they seem to be to, to to judge people they've never met and just cut them down and almost demand that they their you know their job is taken away from them. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's a dangerous area. I mean, I, I Brian Clough was, if you like, my first manager, my first job in my dream occupation was in a local radio station in Nottingham. And I covered Nottingham Forest home and away. I saw him four or five times. Well, I say I saw him four or five times a week if he was in the country, if he wasn't taking one of his breaks. I'm not obviously not telling any tales out of school to say that he was drinking at the time. It was the one you know, it was the one contest he could never win in his life. Because of that, he could be charismatic and brilliant, or he could be downright rude. And, um, you know, I think Martin O'Neill's probably my first, certainly, and, and one of my very closest friends in football. And we talked, we met at that time, and, you know, we talked a lot about our experiences um, with with Brian. And I don't think they were particularly enjoyable at the time. We were all frightened to death of him. I think okay. he's he was one of those characters who you appreciated when he when he you know not when he'd gone not when he'd left us altogether but actually when you weren't with him when you moved on a little bit I've moved on to a job in Liverpool and um that's when it started to resonate with me the impact and influence I I've actually uh, plug plug I've got a book coming out in May and um, and one of the chapters is is called Cluffy. And um, it's not specifically about him. It's just as much about Martin, funnily enough, and how he managed Martin as it is about Brian himself. And yeah, the big question I ask is, would he have been an effective manager today? And what do you think? He would have had to adapt. I was very, very fortunate to be very close to both, well, very close to Sir Bobby Robson and close to Bill Shankly uh, during the course of, uh, of my career. And I think all three of them, when you talk to the players who played for them and, and enjoyed wonderful success with them, it's almost as if they were managed by Darren Brown. They, none of them could quite work out why they were brilliant, how they did it. And it was almost like they'd been hoodwinked during the course of their time under the spell of these extraordinary managers because as coaches, they were nothing special. It was their man management and their man management pretty much off the wall. And um, my conclusion about Brian, whether he meant it or not, and that is the uh, 64,000 euro question, did he mean it, is that he put you on edge. You never knew what was coming next. Yeah. And I think surprise and uncertainty is a is a stronger motivator than fear. I, I My first boss in TV was a guy who yelled at you all the time, whether you were good, bad or indifferent. And after a while, it was a little bit like going into the headmaster's study, you know, and, and taking your four across the, the hand or whatever it was yeah. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, on we go. Yeah, have you finished? Right, can we move on? Whereas with Cluffy, you were never finished. You never knew what was coming next. Yeah. And I think that was either brilliant management or instinctive management. There's a chapter called Sir Alex too, uh, and that's really about power. 
and um, I had the most wonderful relationship with him. He was he was marvelous to me. Uh, took me into his confidence on the eve of big games and told me you know team information which was invaluable to me and so on. But it was one of those secrets that you almost didn't want, you know, <laughs> because if it sneaked out from anywhere, again you were so frightened of him. But he he was able to manage his circumstances very, very skillfully. And I I think with far more consideration than perhaps the other guys that we've just talked about. And of course, his greatest quality for me, coming back to our first question, was his ability to move with the times. And he managed Ryan Giggs differently to how he managed Cristiano Ronaldo eight, 10 years later. He, he had to because he persuaded Ryan Giggs to play for Manchester United by going and knocking on his parents' door. Mm. He persuaded Cristiano Ronaldo to play for Manchester United by doing a deal with a, an agent. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's how football had changed in that time. And, and his longevity is, is a tribute to his ability to actually turn off the hairdryer halfway through his career and start to, to manage with more subtlety and more variety. Do you think it would be fair to say that Ferguson's legacy at United for what he achieved amongst the local hardcore Manchester United fans is perhaps not as great as it should be due to issues such as the Glazer takeover and Ferguson's perceived ability to maybe stop that or halt it and his his lack of doing so. Do you think he's not unfairly treated by the United hardcore, but not as revered as you would think, especially in comparison to some of the Liverpool former managers? I'm a little surprised you say that. I, I grew up as a Manchester United fan because my dad was a United fan. When I came home from the hospital in my mum's arms, we lived next door to the manager of Bury Football Club. I should have been a Bury fan. He was my uncle Dave, but my dad was a United fan and Busby and the Busby Babes. And he'd lived through that, obviously. And um, and so you go with your dad to the game. And and so Busby, for somebody, certainly of my dad's generation and, and of my generation, has that aura perhaps that Shankly has, which is almost impossible to recreate in, in the future. But no, I think n- not least because of the dramatic nature of that 99 final. And, and that's, that in many ways is the legacy. You could argue, and, and in fact, Sir Alec would be the first person to say that he didn't win as many Champions Leagues as he should have done subsequently. But I think there is a, a magic about that that treble season, which obviously extends through the, the quality in, uh, of, of the players that, that played, the individuals that he, he moulded into a team. No, I think his his legacy is pretty pretty damn romantic. <laughs> the odd person you do meet, though, and, and I don't agree with it at all, some people would think that Ferguson was an extremely selfish manager and all about his own reputation. And some people claim you left Manchester United in a bad place. I think it was, he was impossible to follow. I disagree wholeheartedly with the notion that he was selfish for himself. I think that both he and Arsene Wenger are very different people, but they're good examples of genuine leaders, figurehead leaders. I mean, when it's a club like Manchester United, there are no don't knows with Manchester United. You either support Manchester United or you hate Manchester United. And and you know, obviously the same is true of Bayern Munich and Real Madrid and 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 the and the, the mega clubs of world football, and so the man or you know, maybe one day woman at the figurehead of that kind of organisation has to defend that reputation that 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 institution 
pretty much against the world every day. And that's the attitude that he took up. Sir Alec was prepared to defend the indefensible on behalf of Manchester United, on behalf of the players in the dressing room, on behalf of the staff in the staff room, on behalf of the supporters, on behalf of everybody to do with Manchester United. He would go out there and take it. But I don't think it was a vanity, a a personal vanity. I think it was just kind of how he did the job. And, And he got the wagons in the circle and took on the world every single day, whether it was the media, whether it was an opponent, whether it was the refereeing bodies. And the only time really, and I've I've written a little bit about this in in the chapter in the book, I think the only time that the power that fueled that that ability to manage the club for so long, the power that he insisted on, the, the level of power that the modern football manager cannot possibly have over everything that's going on, was only really ever challenged during the Rock of Gibraltar yeah. affair, be- because suddenly he was trying to wield power in a in a different area, and and against some very powerful men, and um, you know I think that was the the one and only time when he kind of couldn't win. He didn't always win every football match, obviously, or every transfer target that he went after, or probably every argument that he had with the player. You know, I would think it was pretty even between him and Roy Keane. But ultimately, he had the power to get rid of Roy. He had the power to get rid of David. He didn't have the power to get rid of his opponents in that particular contest. And um, that's why that episode is is so fascinating for me. As somebody who grew up, as you said, with, with your old man being a United fan and, and you've been a United fan growing up, is it hard to separate that as you become such an iconic commentator who's expected to be a neutral? For example, something like commentating on the Istanbul comeback in 05. Were you annoyed to see Liverpool come back like most <laughs> Manchester United fans, if not all, were? Or do you part that due to professional reasons? My, my affection for Manchester United, uh, uh, no, my passion for Manchester United was long gone. Long, long, long gone. Um, I can't explain it, and I can't. I certainly can't explain it to any football fan who has, has stayed with his or her club through thick and thin through all of their lives, which I probably would have done had I not managed to uh, move into th- this sort of dream occupation that, that I always wanted to move into. And what happened when I got inside track at my first radio station. And don't forget, I was the same age as the players then. So I was hanging out with them even when I wasn't hanging around the corridors waiting to interview them. In my early days, both with Forest and and then again when I moved on to Merseyside, Liverpool and Everton, we travelled with the team. I mean, the the local media travelled on the on the coach with the European champions, you know, to, to away games yeah, uh, and on the plane to, to European games. So these, I'm spending so much time with these guys and I just started to support my friends, um, my mates. That, that That's who I was commentating on part of the time. And to this day, you know, that is the case. I didn't do a game last weekend. Uh, the previous weekend, I commentated on Everton versus Newcastle United. Everton Football Club have been fantastic in my career. I had more than 10 years on Merseyside. I had some wonderful times around Everton. But Steve Bruce is a friend of mine. S- Stephen Clements is the son of one of my very closest friends in football who's died quite recently. I desperately wanted Newcastle United to win that game. I, I, I think I probably hit it pretty well. Um, but they'd lost six in a row, hadn't won in 11 or 12. And, you know, I know 
I know Steve and his family. I know his wife. You know, I, I and and he's in danger of losing his job if he keeps losing football games. I don't want that to happen to my friend. So, my uh, I'm now you know I'm a fly by night really. I'm you know yeah. my 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 affections uh, drift with the wind. And um, when we're talking about the '99, the iconic commentary, the promised land, the forever and a day, the eye was there, and Solskjaer has won it. That is your crowning moment in commentary. Do you think that that is because the event gave you the opportunity to put that imprint on society? Or do you think there was a bit of you thinking about the romance of Manchester United as a football club, but being Matt Busby's birthday and your previous fanship and the relationship you had with your old man, all those things coming into it actually made it more emotional for you than it would have been if it was a different club? It had nothing whatsoever to do with my uh, fanship, as you, you, you term it with Manchester United. That, I say that was gone. I was now, I was now in love with my job. The guy that has taught me 95% of what I think I know about commentary, sadly not with us anymore, um, was Reg Guttridge. He was a boxing commentator. But Reg was a journalist, first and foremost. Um, and from, from that kind of background, and he taught me broadcast journalism. If I'm pleased with anything I did that night in Barcelona, it was, I think, to capture the story. Strangely, the, the, the story is very similar in 2005 in Istanbul. There was an element of fate about both of those runs. I, I needn't take you through the incidents, you know, Kino's goal in Turin and, and then his yellow card, uh, the fact that he was going to miss the final, the extraordinary events in the semi-final replay against Arsenal with mm. Michael saving the Bergkamp penalty and then the gigs and so on. When I said name on the trophy after they equalised it, I don't, I have no idea where that came from, but that was it. It was almost like, and so it is written, it's, it's as if the... Their name had been carved on the trophy a month earlier, really. It, but the, yeah. And there was no sign of it during the night. You know, the first 18 minutes of the game, they didn't look like they were going to win it. That doesn't mean Bayern's name has been on the trophy. It's not a satirical take on the fact that it's not over and, and you're making... No, no, no. It means that Manchester United's name is on the trophy yeah, yeah. and, and they yeah. are now going to win, which, of course... And, and in um, it, I said something similar when Gerard headed the first goal in Istanbul, where it was even more unlikely because Liverpool were 3-0 down, going on 33-0 yeah. down at halftime. And there was no sign of them scoring at one, let alone three goals. But, uh, yeah, hello, hello, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the ghost goal in the semi-final, the, the Gerard goal to beat Olympiacos just to qualify, um, all the other things that, that had happened to them in, in that season. Yeah. Um, just sometimes, but that was the narrative, I think. And I think. Is it easier I to think, take the risk when it's not two English teams, though? Because let's say you're wrong with the United one, you're wrong with the Oh Hello and Liverpool. <laughs> you can be accused of bias, but you know that the audience is predominantly English here, so you can take that risk. If it was United v Chelsea in the European Cup final, are you less kind of risk taking in the comments you would make after a key goal? Oh, I think you're talking about an era which had long passed in both 99 and 05. I mean, I remember walking back to the hotel after the 99 final. We, we, it was a lovely balmy evening and, and we could walk back to our hotel. And I wondered whether I'd overdone it. I wondered whether I'd overplayed it. Yeah. Because the, the day of the ABU, anybody but United, anybody but Liverpool, and I wondered whether there were kind of Manchester City and West Ham and Leeds fans uh, making dolls of me and sticking pins in them. But weirdly, when I got back to the hotel and turned on, we had Sky, there was a feed of Sky News in the hotel room. And it was kind of like England had won the World Cup. And, and, I, and I think that 
because it had been so long since um, an English club had won the European Cup, particularly because it was Bayern and the Germans. Yeah. And and as English football fans, we'd never seen that that kind of turnaround against a major yeah. uh, German uh, force. I think Manchester United and probably me were kind of forgiven that night. I think the most ardent void of international Manchester favorite. City fan thought, go on, you deserve it. You've done it your way. You'll get dogs abuse when you come to our place in August, more than usual. But on you go. Yeah, yeah go on. Fair play to you. But I, but I think the, the era of our brave boys in Europe, which probably was the case in the 70s and 80s, and you know, I think probably the Brian Moores and John Watsons and Barry Davies could could actually commentate on a European game in that way. But I don't think I don't think you could do that in 1999, and you certainly can't do it now. Do you think if it wasn't for that Manchester United team, the Premier League would have been a successful in its overall commercialisation and, and taking over the domestic league scene, really, in terms of viewing figures? Do you think the treble season accelerated English football into nearly an Americanization that left the other nations behind, not just compensating from the ban post-Heisel, in which English teams don't have performed for so long, but it made Manchester United the New York Yankees and Dallas Cowboys in a way, didn't it? I don't know enough about the culture of American team sport, but I think I think there are certain teams in American sport which are pretty much universally loved, you know, almost like America's team. I don't think we have that in 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 UK sport. I I, I think the tribalism, um, the fanaticism, divides. It doesn't it, it it doesn't quite literally unite. I mean, I th- I think you probably answered your own question about the success of the Premier League as to where it came from, from the the late 1980s, and which was a terrible trough. You know, I was in the Heisel Stadium. I was counting bodies that night. I'd never seen a dead body. I had never seen a dead body. I saw them piled up one on top of another. Oh, my. And, of course, you know, what what followed um, with the Bradford Fire and Hillsborough and everything, and that's where we were. And, and of course, you know, the Premier League revolution started in 1992, really just after those things. So it was a pretty bold move one way and another. I mean, the you know, the big boys, and and by the way, they're agitating for a fight again now in Europe. Um, to win but, that you know, first European boys, Cup, though, in it, it with the treble, it was, yeah, was kind of... It was a long time from 92 to 99. And, and, and you know, but the, we had um, David Batty and Graham Lasso having a fight in the middle of a game, a, yeah. a Champions League game before we got to 99. And United should have done better in 97, 98. They were in great position to to win it. So hindsight's a great a great thing. I mean, I, it, it we analysed football matches from the last whistle back to the first whistle. They're not played that way. They're played the other way. And if something happens differently in the first minute, you know, the, the manager who loses 1-0 and feels as if his team were denied a penalty in the first minute. Dare I say, the manager of Tottenham Hotspur, his default then is we drew 1-1. Well, no. No, because if you got a penalty in the first minute, but the rest of the eight, the other following 89 minutes would have been played in a totally different way. Yeah. Schmeichel would not have come forward for that corner if Manchester United had been leading 1-0. So similarly with the history of the modern history of the English club game, it's it's impossible to you, you you can't just play the game of charting back from you know two goals in three minutes by uh, two substitutes and and that turned it but from where it came from the the pit that, that it was in in the late eighties and really into the early nineties that that rises it was fueled obviously by finance 
um, and um, the English game's ability to attract the very best, firstly from the European mainland and then from the rest of the world with the money that they were generating. And it became, yeah, it became a gravy train, really. When the, the night of the treble, when United were the first English team to do it and did it in such dramatic circumstances, it would have been broadcast on, let's say, US news that night, similar in a way yesterday on Irish news, they were covering the Super Bowl. And they wouldn't be doing that unless Tom Brady was 43 and had just won a seventh. There's sometimes moments in certain individual sports sure. that take it to a level that it wouldn't be in without that moment. And the treble, I'd say it is the biggest moment in club football nearly ever. I don't know. Is this is the honest answer to that question? Um Am I just United bigger than Real Madrid yet outside of the European? Do Madrid mainland? have a bigger moment than that, though? But yeah, no. Well, I don't know. Maybe I, it's difficult to equate. Let's shift the the um, the subject to Ronaldo and Messi. I mean, that all of us who've been fortunate enough to witness that rivalry, that exhibition over the course of the last well, it's more than ten years, isn't it? Fifteen years. Would football be, club football be the global force that it is now if it hadn't had these two iconic superstars who were so different mm. and who finished up in in rivalry, direct rivalry in one country? Um, I think that might be a, I don't know, and it's an interesting argument and debate, but I think that might be a bigger storyline in modern club football the Manchester United uh, winning the Champions League in 1990. Yeah, I, I think they're all kind of intrinsically linked, though, such as the fact that, like, Ronaldo took the shirt off Beckham, somebody whose star was completely elevated through the roof after he recovered from the sending off in 98 to then win the treble in 99. I don't know if Ronaldo... Does Cristiano Ronaldo happen if he goes to Liverpool or Arsenal and not to Fergie's United at the time he did? Oh, I think so because of the nature of the man. And and listen, David Beckham was a wonderful footballer. And in terms of making the very most of, of the abilities that he had, uh, a great footballer. I think great's an overused word in, um, uh, in, in sport, in life. But, um, you know, David's a great. Um, but those two guys are, are at a different level. It, it almost to the point now where we are hesitating about dethroning them. I, I just, yeah. not, much, not much argument that Virgil van Dijk and Robert Lewandowski have been better than either of them over the course of the last two years. But <laughs> when they draw up the shortlist, you know, you know, when it gets down to the last three, um, you know, CR7 and Leo are still in it. <laughs> you know, they're still the they're still candidates and um, they're still doing ex pretty extraordinary things, really. I think football's lucky to have had those two. Having seen them both live, probably as much as anybody has had the luxury <laughs> of seeing both live, who do you have? Oh, they... Uh, Messi, is, Messi takes the breath away. Messi does things... Messi's like... Yeah, I mentioned Darren Brown before in a different in a different context. Messi is the conjurer. Messi is the guy who comes around the tables and and performs card tricks in front of twenty of you, and you can see the cards, and you don't know how he or she does it. Ronaldo is a diff has a different kind of brilliance. It, it's a it's a more it, it's a kind of superhero, athletic, powerful prowess that he has, um, and I kind of. Uh, I probably would lean to the cuter 
skills of of Lionel Messi. I I I think I think Lionel Messi can win it. I, you know, the, the Barcelona's performance against Manchester United at Wembley in eleven mm. might be the might be the best club performance I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, they were they were exceptional, and Pep Guardiola deserves a lot of praise. A lot of people in that team deserve a lot of praise. But I saw a lot of Barcelona games, even when Pep Guardiola was in charge, where the game plan actually was give it to Lionel, give it to Leo, get it to Leo. <laughs> He'll sort it. And, and at that level, you know, for a guy to be able to do it on his own, to, to you know, I'm old enough to remember comic books and to see that kind of wisp of that the, the cartoonists could draw, you know, the, the air passing between defenders. Yeah as Roy Race or whoever scored for Meltis to Rovers. Yeah. Little Messi did that for real. You know, he, yeah. he actually did that. Yeah. Uh, and you finished up commentate on goals. And I've always said this thing. Um, I put it in the book, actually, that commentators should be allowed one F word per season, rather like um, a tennis player or a cricket captain has to choose his or her appeals, yeah. um, we should be allowed one, but use it properly because there are some, sometimes you see things on a football field and that word that begins with F, which has four letters, is the only word to, to, to utter. And it's, it's just not fair. Everything about my life is absolutely wonderful. The biggest unfairness in my life is that for once a year, I can't say fuck live on the air because and you, you just want messy. to messy B3 and say <laughs> fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ronaldo's looks like it's maybe 70% complete mental, psychological work rate, narcissism, self-belief. Messi <laughs> is a genius. Oh, I think Lionel can look after himself in the vanity stakes. Don't you worry about that. In, in terms of who could, I mean, talk about the influence that he had on people on the field. He could have a big influence off the field too, maybe bigger than Cristiano. It's a fascinating kind of, story which as i say we, we're frightened to draw any kind of a line under uh, and start the debate properly because they're still doing it do you think ferguson drained um, the work rate into ronaldo or is it something he came with oh i i think it's from his background isn't it i mean he um i i i love the emerald isle and i'm missing coming over but you have had to live with irish jokes all your life well in portugal the jokes are about people from madeira yeah you know i, th I think people did take the Michael out of him uh, in his early years. And, and I think he either had to, you know, fight back and, and become hardened to it or it was going to break him. And I th and we saw which way he went. And I, th I think that was the forming of the personality, the, as you say, the, the, the mental beast that, that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has become and so admired for it. The reason the Ryder Cup is, the greatest sporting event of the world for me is because it's a team event played by selfish individuals and there are only ever two hands on the grip. You know, you're playing, you're playing for a team, but actually you're playing as individuals. And and Ronaldo could kind of do that, couldn't he, within a game. He he kind of had that the mentality of a of a Federer or a Woods, I, I think. I'm not quite sure that you see that very often within the greater team sports. I would think probably more so in rugby where the roles are kind of more defined, less so obviously in the 21st century game than the game that we grew up with, where prop forwards never touched the ball all season long. You know, they had a job to do and they did it. That That's not the case anymore. But I think 
with the really cool fly halves of the game, and particularly the goal kickers. It's it's a little bit what you're talking about, really, with the quarterback. Uh, and I think that Ronaldo developed the kind of mentality of an individual within the team. Is it hard to maintain relationships, maintain sincere relationships with people when you have such a voice of power and influence? So if you lean one way in your narrative, you can shift public opinion towards somebody being a good manager, somebody not being up to it, some player underperforming, some player not being given a fair chance. Your voice matters a lot and public opinion matters a lot to the decisions that are made at board level. Is it tough to commentate and mix friendships within the game, cite their underperformance after, after a final whistle? The only part of what you just said that I would dispute is our power. And I'm, I'm not sure that... I think once upon a time... Certainly in the UK, the, the tabloid writers had a, a certain amount of power. Some of the uh, abuse which the likes of Graham Taylor and um, Sir Bobby Robson had to put up with, I think that that kind of power has been diluted now by the by the sort of di- diverse range of of the of, of media sources. So, um, and I don't have that audience to speak to, which. Um, I had perhaps in my early, you know, the 20 million audiences, you, you don't have, you know, that very, very rarely happens anymore. And as I say, I don't think the commentator's voices is, is heard. But certainly I think that we probably need them more than they need us. I think that the breakdown in trust between football and its media is the biggest single development that I've seen during the course of my career. And it's sad because the media should be the link between football and its public. And I'm not sure... Yeah, the media grew the again as well. To a degree. But I mean, I, I think the public are pretty smart and they can see what's good and bad without needing me or Gary Neville or Jamie Carragher or Roy Keane to tell them. I don't think we have quite the, the influence you're suggesting. But because of the friendships that we form, and you know, we are all in the same kind of industry, really. I mean, Roy Hodgson is just such a good man and mm. my wife and, and Roy and Sheila have been out to dinner together half a dozen times and when you go out to dinner with the Hodgson's you don't really talk football you talk about anything other than football it doesn't mean he hasn't got a passion for football he's got a burning passion for football um, when he was England manager he was really really good to me we had again had a, had a trust um, I knew his staff he had Bray Lewington and Gary Neville was a really good friend too and I was working on tournaments um, where, yeah, the, the, I, I think the stakes rise with the national team uh, in the public kind of investment, emotional investment in in a national team at a at a major tournament. So when England are trailing two one to Iceland with two minutes to go, and uh, the performance has been hapless, and I. I, I had a good friend who was the editor of the show who can who has a key to talk to me in my ear. And he knew that I was close to Roy. And he actually came on and, and said to me privately in my ear, you're going to have to say that his position is untenable if they lose. And I went back on my little secret key to him and said, 99, Manchester United, they haven't lost yet. I know. Um, yeah. And so I didn't call it until it happened. But when it happened... I, I said, you know, Roy Hodgson will have to go. And um, he knew it. I mean, he'd gone within half an hour of the final whistle. But it's a tough thing. It's have a tough you, thing to you do spoke to when you really, really like somebody. Yeah. And you know that they've given as much to that job 
as anybody else could possibly have done. So it, it is, it's a tough call. That, that moment's not easy. But did you fall out over that or did you remain? No, not at all. No, I say he'd gone. He'd, he'd fallen on his sword. We'd never even discussed it, I don't think. Um, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't calling for somebody who just won his last 10 games to go. I was, I was calling for somebody who'd missed, who, who was having a third crack at a major tournament with England. Yeah. And, and the draw had opened up for us. We're taking the lead against Iceland, which is all you've got to do because they can't score. Um, and we lost, <laughs> and it was we. I mean, it, the, uh, you know, when when you when you call in the national team in a major tournament, I I think as long as you're objective in your calling of the game, I don't think it's top thumping to to lapse into the occasional, very occasional we, um, because you know the, one of the things that Reg taught me about communication and broadcasting was to identify your audience and broadcast to them, and yeah. even in a diverse UK. I mean, 99% of this massive audience watching want England to win, just as they, you know, they would when Ireland beat Italy in in New Jersey, and um, you know, so it, it it that's it's a kind of different call. Then I'll give you another story. David Jones, um, who a lot of your listeners will remember, um, manager of Southampton, Stockport mm-hmm. County, Wolverhampton Wanderers. David was a really, I, I was in local radio in Merseyside. And uh, he was a good friend uh, to the point that when he packed football in, he didn't take a pub or a bookies. He actually went to work in the in the care sector. That's the kind of guy that 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 Jonah is. And um, he was working at a care home with um, with children with challenges. And I don't remember he was actually there was actually um, he was actually arrested. Um, somebody brought some uh, some awful charges against him. And I and I let's say straight away, not only they were never proven, they were disproven. Um, what is the se- sexual charges? Yeah, it was a very, very, very unfortunate incident. Um, and at one point, his solicitor sp- spoke to me about the possibility of be giving a character reference, and I would be very, very happy to do that. So I, you can forget the case now because that's not relevant to the story. And not say not only was it not proven, it was totally disproven. And David went through an awful year. Where he had to Southampton actually got rid of him, um, but he came back and 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 came back totally uh, innocent man. So he's manager of Wolverhampton Wanderers a couple of years later. This close friend of mine, um, they've just lost at West Ham to cries of Jones out from the Wolves fans who travelled. Um, I think he stayed in the job for about another three weeks. So I'm now doing the post match interview with him, and for some reason. As journalists, we feel as if we've got to ask the difficult question. And it's the last time I ever asked the question. Uh, at the end of the interview, I said, do you think you'll still be the Wolves manager in a week's time? And he answered it as, you know, as diplomatically um, and as gracefully as he could. And then when the interview finished, he just looked at me and he said, thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. And he just walked away. And I, I thought a lot about that. I've never discussed it with him, but I thought a lot. It's like the people who shout out across Downing Street, you know, when there's a cabinet reshuffle. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, do you think you're still going to keep your... I mean, what? And, and it's just it's just vain reporting. It's not actually asking a question at all. It's just sort of getting yourself, getting your voice on the report. And why we feel charged as journalists to ask a question to which David Jones didn't have the answer. It's nothing to do with him. He, he, you know, all he can try and do is win the next game. But, yeah, I mean, and when it's somebody who 
you really, really like and you're doing it. I just felt rotten afterwards. And I yeah. say, I've never asked that kind of question since. And if, ed- if ever an editor has said to me, you need to ask him, I, I, no, I don't. I really don't. Yeah, influencing the employment of somebody. Yeah, and I think if you've stood opposite Alec, Alec Ferguson in, in a post-match interview situation after they've lost, um, I'd like to put, I don't know who the, so I suppose Andrew Neal is seen as the kind of hardline sort of Jeremy Paxman type political interview. I'm sure you've got them in Ireland too. Um, you know, the guys who ask that, well, it's easy to ask of a politician because a politician can't do anything other than try and wriggle and answer. And that's their kind of job. But you ask it, if you try Fergie after they lost 5-1 at Manchester City, you know, you ask him and you see his head turn to one side and his, his nervous cough and you hear your question lengthening by the second yeah. as you try to qualify it in the hope that he isn't going to hit you. And that's yeah. what David Johnson just hit. He should have just punched me in the nose, really. That's what he should have done. Uh, and that would have cleared the air. That would have got him, that would have got him out of the job pretty quickly. Um, but it's kind of what I deserved at the time. And it's what a lot of us deserve because our job, and, and Reg was brilliant at, getting you to take a step back and asking what the purpose is of what you're doing, a commentary, a report, an interview. What are you trying to achieve and for who? And actually, it's nothing to do with you. We're, we're just a vehicle. We're, it's not. It shouldn't be a vanity business. We should be trying to ask questions which afford a greater understanding and insight into something that we all care an awful lot about. We're not trying to get people out of work or make them say something they don't want to say. Um, that's That shouldn't be what we're about. That's not what communication is. Do you commentate as if in your head you're doing it for yourself and what you would view as a great decoration of this sporting fixture? Or do you ever consider there's people worldwide listening to my voice? Are you nervous doing what you're doing? Would it be similar to a musician on a stage in that way? If, if you're making a, a, a musical comparison, we're, we're, the, you know, we're, we're the string section. You know, we're the soundtrack to the movies. Football is a visual thing. Um, you can turn us down. You can't turn us down when we're on radio. We're more important... Um, when we're a radio commentator, that's the biggest difference between a radio and TV commentator is you're more important on radio. But in TV, it is, um, it's a visual experience. And um, it's, you, I mean, there have been some great movie soundtracks, but nobody goes to the cinema to listen to the soundtrack. And you notice the soundtrack if, it, if it's spoiling the movie for you. It's, um, I often draw the, the analogy with going into an Italian restaurant and, the, and the, some Japanese string music playing in the background. You, if the, the accordion's blasting away, you don't ask, what's that lovely song? It's Italian. You're eating Italian food. That's what you expect in an Italian restaurant. And commentators are a bit like that. We're the second layer of your entertainment, the first layer of your entertainment. The most important person at a... Uh, football outside broadcast is the director, the, the the man or woman who's deciding which of the twenty odd cameras in the in the output of that camera you're seeing on your tablet or in your TV set. So when you're commentating, and let's say there's a there's a shot to a, a certain player, a shot to a certain person in the crowd, are you watching the field or are you watching the screens? And there's no such thing as an idea. Well, there are one or two ideal commentary positions where you can affix the the screens to be in your eye line as you watch the game from the field. Um, the other element, which I guess your listeners are probably aware of, maybe they're not, is that we have an audio feed of the director talking to the cameras. Um, 
I mean, not every commentator listens to it. It, it, it. It's it's very difficult, particularly for the male species to multitask, but it means you've got to talk and listen at the same time. But you get a guide from where the director is going with the pictures as to what's coming next. Uh, you also get a guide as to uh, when they're lining up replays as to what the content of those replays may be. So that relationship's really kind of important to uh, to the commentator. But we are just trying to augment what you're seeing. You know, we, we you've seen the, the commentary charts that I prepare for games, but anybody can do the research. It's how you use the research editorially as a broadcast journalist. If if there is a skill to the to the job, that's that's the skill. And if you use 10, more than 10% of the information that's on that chart, then you're probably boring the viewer or the listener and you're probably indulging yourself because you spent an hour looking it up so you're damn well going to use it. No, that's that's not good commentary. That's not good communication. Um, good commentary is good journalism, good editorialising. And do you go with the atmosphere in the stadium, like the crowd? Would the reaction of a crowd's noise tell you how long to hold a pause it's easier when the the stadium's full i mean if 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 you care to to listen to those two manchester united goals that change football forever <laughs> in, your, in your mind yeah. um probably the best thing I, I i think if you count if you get the original uh version of it and it's, it's out there somewhere on your favorite search engine i think there's seven or eight seconds between me, me shouting sharing them and name on the trophy, and similarly between and Solskjaer has won it and Manchester United have reached the promised land or wherever it was I said next. But I, th- there was a pause, and you can do that when the stadium's full. I'm not sure that you can do it quite as readily right now. I think there's been a trend towards more conversational commentary, which I'm not all particularly comfortable with, but I think it was already on the way. Why has that come into it? Is that because things like YouTube... Things like Facebook and Twitter have made conversation or needless chatter so much more valuable to consumption as opposed to what they used to be. As you can hear, I'm not a fan. I I listen to all other commentators, not just in football. I actually think we can sometimes learn even more from commentators in other sports. But um, I, I and I listen critically. <laughs> I'm not I'm not the best person to watch a football match with. And I, you know, I, I try to appreciate the different styles. I mean, um, you may have heard that um, ITV decided to replace me last year as as their main England commentator. Why was that? Well, I don't. Well, they, I didn't take the decision. Strangely, a bit. You're talking to David Jones now, yeah. but they have replaced me with somebody who has a different approach to commentary, and I that makes it actually easier for me. Even though I was disappointed, uh, to say the least, uh, and didn't see it coming. The the guy Sam Matterface who's who's now holding that role commentates in a different way to, to I so that's good it would it would have been crazy just to commentate me with a younger version of me because I can still do me but he can he does Sam and that's that's cool and I, I, you know I understand and accept that um, and there are commentators out there who I think when you start to talk across the action that the viewer is watching then I think you're in dangerous ground. I think, um, and I think when it starts to personalise it, when it all gets nicknames and yeah. where you ate last night and all yeah, that yeah, kind of, yeah, I, yeah. Think, yeah, I think you're halfway up the, the staircase to start the Waldorf's balcony, is you it, know, and I don't, I, I don't take commentary that seriously, but I think it is important that you treat it as a profession and as, as something, it's a, it's a technique, 
And uh, and uh, I, I think if you start to drift and drivel and you have these kind of stream of consciousness conversations which veer off, that and and almost like basketball, so that you only actually commentate when the ball goes in the penalty area. No, 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 no. It's it, what happens in the middle of the field is absolutely as important as what happens at the two ends. We don't value historic romanticism as much in any art form, even a commentary. Now we just want mindless entertainment because we're so used to scrolling and irrelevance really it's why justin bieber comes on stage not playing an instrument throws a few backup dancers in some production and he has a bigger following than lennon and mccartney did in a way it's kind of happening now to commentary it's a modern form that doesn't have as much historic knowledge or as much of a cultural feel but that's what the modern day consumer is looking for they want to sit down and they want to hear two people having banter i think we've been numbed i don't think we have the ability to feel i think our hearts are gone and the fact that the old commentaries, the likes of you and John Motson are on their way out is very troubling for the game, but it's the FIFA generation. It's the FIFA generation. People who, who get their footballing opinions off what rating Paul Pogba's given on an EA game as opposed to his, his upbringing in, in working-class France. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I know what I think. Um, I don't think there's just the two of us left on the planet who still value that that considered journalism. There's just so much of it out there now. I mean, uh, and I can get Twitter abuse for a game that I'm 200 miles from. I can be sat on the sofa at home with a glass of wine and my voice is fairly distinctive. I'm reasonably well known. And yet I can still get criticised for a commentary that I'm not actually doing yeah. on, a, on a channel I've never worked for because nobody kind of knows who the commentator is anymore. BT changed it a lot in that way, didn't it? BT's very effects, very banter, and it is quite self-indulgent and we're, we're fully aware who the commentator and the co-commentator is and it's all become a bit of a laugh. It, it seems like the, the viewer that's being aimed at now aren't the football historians who, who every fan in a way was throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s and it's now aimed towards the FIFA watchers. I don't disagree with your review of, of the product you're talking about. I don't know that it's targeted to an audience that's demanded it. I think it's just happened. And I'm not absolutely convinced. I, I don't, I've got, I, I mean, obviously when you, when you get to my age, um, you have things taken away from you, which you're not quite ready to give up, you know, um, yeah, that's the nature of kind of growing a little older. You think it's uh, ages? You, you just can't run. You just can't run anymore, you know. And um, and you still want to. And um, so I'm. I have to be very aware of n not sounding old. But but I but I don't. That doesn't mean that I make a conscious effort to try to be down with the kids to to work Justin Bieber into my next commentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more it's more to do with actually trying to actually preach what Reg taught me, which is to identify your audience. And where my argument is with some of the decisions which are made based on age are that I I think they're being made by people who haven't actually analyzed the audience. We're growing older. You know, the population's growing older. And, I mean, if there is a notion that you need a 30-year-old to broadcast to a 30-year-old, which I totally disagree with, because 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 10-year-olds all love David Attenborough. I mean, it, it, as long as you keep the blinkers off and keep your mind open and keep abreast of kind of what's happening, 
and stick to your principles. I mean, I've got four children between the ages of 25 and 30. They're amongst my best friends in the world. I've got to be able to, you know, I've got to be able to resonate with them in some way. So I, th I don't think it's impossible for a man in his 60s to still be relevant to people in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. And, it, you know, if you're seriously telling me that you need young people to broadcast to young people, what about all the old people who are watching? I mean, are we going to have 20 commentators at every football match where you, you choose your channel, not whether you want fake crowd sounds or natural stand, but you choose the generation of commentator who you want to listen to? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, the, the you know, mass communication is all about reaching as many people as, as possible. And, uh, and, and, you know, the diversity of a football audience, the biggest single diversity of a football audience, in my opinion, is not age, it's not um, uh, uh, skin colour, it's not sexual orientation, it's not gender, it's their level of understanding of football. So when you're commentating on a 20, to a 20 million audience, you're commentating to all the people who've watched every Europa League game that's kicked off at three o'clock in mainland Europe all season long. And you're also commentating to your uh, Uncle Pat uh, and, and Auntie Joan who watched one football match a year. Yeah. And they're as important on that day as anybody else. That's our job as communicators to be able to reach all of those people. Otherwise, I mean, look at, I, you know, the, if there was ever going to be another Glastonbury, who headlined the main stage at Glastonbury, what was this, the year before last? Stormzy. Stormzy from the, you know, the uh, at some South London estate, a rapper who has black skin. I mean, you need, just to go to Glastonbury, you need a couple of grand just to go. Uh, and if you're going to glamp and everything, you probably you can probably double there. It is a hugely white audience hugely middle-class audience and yet this guy comes on stage and starts performing songs and everybody's mouthing along to shut up everybody knows the lyric and that's brilliant because that is a guy who whether he meant to or not he certainly wasn't writing his his music for any of those people but it went with the but politics somehow, it? somehow he's connected with them and um yeah we shouts about boris from the stage we can, anybody can do that but it became involved. Um, you know, I'm a Remainer. I, you know, you know, you're talking to a Remainer here yeah. and, and, a, and a Labour voter. So, but no, it, there's a connection that's happened, which is brilliant because it's broken through the barriers and across uh, and, and out of the bubbles that we all live in. But like, for example, do they want the commentator now who somebody can take a snippet of and a funny conversation that lasts 30 seconds gets thrown on Instagram and shared 40 times ahead of a really in-depth conversation you're having with Andy Townsend, although more interesting and more linked to the game of football, it isn't as shareable to a 16-year-old girl from Bradford or a 22-year-old who only has ever played FIFA. And they're thinking about hits. For example, when you referenced a Manchester United are going to party like it's 1999, that's after a Prince song, a multi-instrumentalist, the type of musician who you respect... <laughs> We're in an era, Clive, and I said this to Andy Cole not too long ago on the show. There's YouTubers boxing. There's YouTubers now engaged in some of the biggest boxing fights in the world. There is no rules anymore. The only rules is get as much hits and as much exposure as you can. And as your style of commentary as breakdownable into 30 seconds of humor as they can get from these new guys on the scene who are, who are playing up to that kind of Nickelodeon format. 
Probably. Well, I don't know. You you talked about they a moment ago. Who who the hell are they? I mean, the audience, and that's the most that, important that's audience. Who that's who you've is. got to define. Yeah, you've got you've got to define your audience. But I think if I've learned anything from social media, if <laughs> that's a big, great big capital I there, by the way, if I've learned anything, it is the difference between numbers and engagement. And it, it, you can you can buy tweets, you can buy followers. It, it, you know, running up numbers through hits is is one thing. But actually, the real value of having a, a strong social media account is when you engage, when, when you're able to communicate with people in such a way that you get some genuine warmth or or, or the op- proper reaction, not just sort of, um, you know, I'll abuse you because you're on the TV at the moment, and then I'll abuse the next guy that's on. But actual engagement with, with strangers, with people you never meet, there, therein lies the value. And, and actually, I think, um, my wife runs a PR company, and um, she is always, as a marketeer, is always looking for engagement. She's not looking at numbers. She's looking at, at influencers that she can use who will actually engage with the audience that she's trying to reach. And I think that the notion that it's modern and contemporary to read a few tweets out at half time, which say absolutely nothing at all about the game. You know, we've had a message here from from Dave, who says... Mindless uh, entertainment is popular. Mindless entertainment. I don't know if it is that popular because I don't think it's engagement. I think think when you do something which has a little bit more depth, then you get some level of engagement. And and I think that smart marketeers, smart uh, broadcast executives, smart um, program makers, if, if they've got any sense, are not looking for that here today, gone tomorrow, number that hit. They're looking for for, for something a little bit uh, more lasting and something which actually brings a, a little bit more engagement and loyalty. I wish that was the case, and I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope you are right, but it does seem to me that we're really withdrawing our valuation of, of anything that isn't about instant entertainment, instant hits, and instant shareability, regardless of how important or unimportant it is. And this is this is quite a uh, an obvious kind of conundrum that we've all dealt with. But you're somebody who's been closer to it than many people have had the opportunity to speak to before in my life. What is your viewpoint on the consistent underachievement of the England national team throughout the last three or four decades? Why has it happened? Do you actually put it down to media pressure? Is it luck and a series of decisions, injuries, and just kind of football happenings, or is there something within that country that? that makes these athletes fall short? I think that shirt has been a weight on the shoulders of players. Um, I think there are lots of different reasons. Luck has played a very, very small part um, since that Russian, or he wasn't from Russia, he was from somewhere else, actually, wasn't he? decided to give us a goal 153 years ago, remember it was, we last won a major trophy. (laughs) Uh, Somewhere the, the, um, the, the sort of refereeing gods have been getting us back a little bit. Um, but that's not the main reason, no. Um, I refuse to believe, because I've seen with my own eyes, that Gerard and Lampard and Scholes and Beckham and Ferdinand and Terry and all were Ashley Cole, probably the best left back in the world for a spell, were not good enough. They were good enough. They were good enough. So that, that begs the question, then, why didn't they perform as a unit, as a team, 
to the level that they the, the, of, of achievement that they reached it in you know with their club teams. Um, I think we did have a strange spell with management. You know, looking back, even though the whole situation became so toxic around the time of Bobby Robson and Graham Taylor that I actually welcomed the appointment of an overseas manager, somebody who wasn't sort of kissing the badge and wasn't as engaged emotionally, just a hired hand who came in to organise the players and then, you know, go away again in two or three years' time. I don't think that either Ericsson or Capello did did that model any favours with the way that they managed the team. Um, I mean, if you talk to the players who were in their dressing rooms, they have absolutely, well, minimal respect or affection for for either of them. Um, there were um, the, the tribal nature of of the club game, which we've talked about, did did provide um, challenges, I think, within dressing rooms, uh, notably the Manchester United Liverpool division. But it went further than that. Um, I mean, I think South Africa in particular was a real mess after the, you know, the arguments over the captaincy and so on. So, so we've always been able to somehow generate some, you know, some kind of distraction, which um, as and it snowballed, and it's it's got to the stage where, and I saw this in the Iceland game, where really really good players couldn't control the ball, and they could they had little bubbles coming out of their head with the morning headlines in it. Yeah. And I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here, basically. I mm. I don't need this. I really don't need this. I don't have to go through this. And it's not a lack of patriotism. They are. They do care. And they are patriotic. What you've got now is a slightly differing model. It maybe changed a little bit in the last year. We'll we'll wait and see in the summer if if there is a tournament and it and well, it's. But we've had the green board. We've had the fold. We've had that. We've had the England thing happen again. Even though we left them to their own devices, nearly because it wasn't thought that they'd do anything. The reason England were kind of left alone for the 18 World Cup is because people just presumed failure. And the minute yeah, they saw an element way, of success, there's an anti-Southgate yeah. narrative, and now there's the Foden on the Greenwood issue again, and it's happening. Yeah, but, I mean, listen, Gareth was at our wedding. Gareth is one of my closest friends in football. And Gareth Southgate is everything that he appears to be. That's not a smokescreen. That's who he is. And he stepped into the job in a, in a yet another emergency. And he organised a squad of players with, that didn't really have a, a, a major player among them. I mean, really good players, but not that really big kind of Rooney sort of superstar figure that, that overshadowed the rest of them or clashed with other superstars. So they were a very easy squad to like. They were good guys. Um, Gareth would be the first person to tell you, and he told me uh, on the way back from the 2018 World Cup, we are not the fourth best team in the world. Definitely not the fourth best team in the world. Uh, and we got a little bit of the of the you know the, the good fortune that had been missing from the England sort of um, conundrum for that, that we for wish a little was there while. ten years ago. Yeah. And in fairness, he you know, went on and performed well again at the next nation at the next Nations League, which is all that was was there and we'll wait and see what happens next. What he has got now is some he's got some shooting stars, you know, he's got some one or two of these guys are um you know that they're young and that they are hugely talented, very, very famous. And that might take a little bit more managing, particularly in the environment that we've got. And, and most of the problems that 
England have had discipline wise have been directly related to COVID. And crikey, I wouldn't want to be 22, 23, 24. I mean, I wouldn't want to be 84 in, in this pandemic. Yeah. Obviously, uh, you're in, but I mean, talk, talk about throwing a, an, an awful smothering blanket over youth. You know, kids who are going through university and are not interacting, kids at school and not interacting, young, talented men who've got the world at their feet and can't and can't get to that world at the moment. I understand their frustrations, I think. And I you know, I, I think we've become a very unforgiving, judgmental world. And I think and hope that people will start to learn to forgive and at least, you know, look at these guys and, and what they're going through. And and they're talented enough to do well this um this coming summer. We'll see. Uh, but but I think uh, Unfortunately, I'm kind of hoping that they might take the tournament away from England. I don't know. I think, you know, performing in England with all that expectation yeah. and every window draped in a St. George's flag and and every newspaper, you know, Eileen Drury will have her own column and, uh, you know, all, all Mystic back. Meg and goodness, I mean, it'll, we'll build it up into something. Jerry Honeywell's going to throw on the dress again. Well, exactly. You know, it's uh, and that you know we're, we're all guilty. That I'm in the same media as everybody else. I never try to separate myself from a tabloid newspaper. We're all TV's as guilty as anybody as thumping the tub. Um, but international football matter as much as it used to, though. I feel with the globalization, not only of the world online, but also yeah. with the, with the, the Champions League final so evidently being a higher standard of players than any yeah. international match can be. It's not as big of a deal as it used to be. Like Maradona's World Cup is his identity, is his legacy. I don't really think it's as necessary for Ronaldo or Messi to have won the World Cup because Marcus Rojo and Sergio Romero are starting in the final. Yeah, but it was a big deal three years ago in England, definitely. I mean, and that's only three years ago. And I know a lot's happened in that last three years. But, you know, there were 28 million people watching the semi-final that I commentated on. I mean, that's that's the country, you know, that's everybody. So the last time we had one, a proper one, it was a big deal. So I, I think that international football is being compromised and squeezed by the events of the day. I think the players are going to be knackered by next summer. Um, they tend to be knackered anyway when they get to a, a major tournament, half of them. Um, and I, But I think they're going to be really goose this time. Um, and I think, you know, that it, it what, what's going to suffer at the moment? I, it, Gareth, actually very much like Roy Hodgson, had a wonderful record of very, very few players withdrawing. We didn't have the bad old days when six or seven were pulled out by people like Fergie. You know, you're not going, by the way. Yeah. That, that's not been happening for the... In the in the kind of recent culture of of because Roy was a very popular manager with players, very popular indeed, and and they they like turning up and playing for England, and they do for Gareth, they really do, but it'll be interesting to see next month how many withdrawals there are from from because these internationals in March, boy, I mean, yeah, that they, they they're almost a distraction we can do without. And um, it, it might it might almost be better for him just to have a training camp for you know for, get the place together for ten days and see what he's got. Are you at all sad to see what a terrible place the Irish national team is currently in? Well, I I I, I love Ireland and I love the Irish national team and and you know Mick Mick I don't I don't know the current manager at all. Uh, I know Mick very very well indeed. Um, so again, you know, you want your mates to do well. Um, the, the resources are limited. It's the same with the Scottish national team. I mean, 
you know, Wales have been a little bit different because they've had a couple of really exceptional players who've, you know, helped them, th- sort of helped them. Um, in, yeah, we, we had ours. We had our Roy Keynes. Yeah, our, yeah. We had, yeah, we had he our, did. Uh, and and so did Scotland before that. I didn't know that we had yeah. one of the most corrupt football associations in the world either. Well, that's that, that's it's your opinion. Um, I I I don't know what the background to, to all that is, but um, we're talking about an association that asked to be the thirty third team in the World Cup over a referee decision. They're not, <laughs> they're not used to handing over envelopes. I don't know who are Clive. <laughs> if, if I don't talk about the charts, your wife is probably yeah. going to send bullets after she sent. You're going to you're going to tell me the, the the federation were in bed with Thierry Henry that day too, yeah. and that was all that was all cooked up for a reason, was it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, Whatever. No, the, the Irish the Irish FAI is uh, you you could do a second book on that. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the chart here, Clive, that that you sent over, and just just to let the listeners know, these are available on on a website. And what's the story with them? Give, give, us, give us the brief lowdown on how this project came about. Well, the website's www.commentarycharts.com. During the spring lockdown, uh, I was sorting through all the files and all the commentary charts, which are the research notes that I prepare and have always prepared um, uh, manually by writing out. I mean, I'm, I'm not computer illiterate, but I have a history. My, my history of education is in learning is by copying out. That's... And, and so that's how I learn. And then the second thing about the notes is that they are pristine in their preparation, very neat handwriting, three different colors. It's remarkable the so work that's going in here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well, whatever. But it, I say anybody can do that. And, and if you've got neat handwriting, you can do them in my style. But psychologically, they're a kind of a comfort blanket that when I look down at kickoff, at least I feel as if I'm prepared. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, might, I might still F up, but I, I'm, I, at least I've got no excuses. I've done all the preparations. So there's a kind of a – they're not a safety net because I don't the, – the information's not there for when it goes quiet. It's not like that. The information's there for when it for when you can use it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. W- w- but actually looking down at something that's been carefully constructed and compiled and looks great, I think just makes you feel great at kickoff, and that's – you know, say that's why I call it more of a comfort blanket, really. It's a psychological prop uh, that I have. And so I continue to prepare the commentary charts in the same way. Um, in the spring lockdown, I, uh, I run a little Instagram competition every day where I'm sorting through my files and um, I'd cover up the name of a player, take a picture of the whole chart, who's missing. And um, people started to ask for them. So well, can we get that? So, um we did set up a little cottage business. We bought like a dozen frames from Amazon and yeah. and got a printing mate to uh, put three of the famous games up. And it's gone from there. We've, we've got 30 odd uh, matches now, uh, including uh, Italy versus Ireland. They are a memento of a great day or night in the lives of so many football fans, but they are a screen grab of kickoff. There is nothing on the chart which tells you what happened in that game. Yes. It only shows you the team lineups and the background information to that game as it was at kickoff. And so you add your story. So if you hang it in the downstairs loo and you finish up in a conversation with somebody, you tell them where you were that night, where you watched it, and they tell you where they were. And, and of course, on the like the Manchester United Bayern Munich, Sheringham Solskjaer are just two names down near the bottom of the chart. There, yeah. There's no... They have no prominence on the and chart. Are these, are these the notes you actually would have taken that no, night? 
I'm no, so no, no, they're not the originals. They are in the style of the originals. Yeah. And talking of, of Dear Sir Alex, he had the original notes for the two finals they won framed in his office at Carrington. I mean, he loved them and, and gave a very generous donation to a, a bowel cancer charity that I'm a patron of in order to have the originals. So I've recreated on one sheet of paper so that you can hang it A4, A3 or A2 yeah. on wherever you want to hang it. Um, the, the Yeah, the lineups for that game with well, the information. The most remarkable the stat on the chart that I have here, <laughs> the Manchester United v Bayern Munich, is the fact that Kalina was only 39 years of age in that game. I think the most remarkable stat on that is that they didn't always, they didn't always score. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I said, I said, do, can they score? They always score. They drew nil nil at Blackburn ten days earlier. Yeah, so it was a lie. I was just yeah. a lie. Yeah. <laughs> remarkable, and it's a great memento to have, and I really appreciate the fact that it's signed. To have and Solskjaer has won it, uh, signed by Clive Tilsey <laughs> on the back, is is perhaps one of the greatest things I've ever received in my life. So I appreciate you. Which broke the cardinal rule of commentary. I called the winner across the line before the winner had crossed the line. And if Bayern had gone down the other end and equalised and it had gone to extra time and they'd won the shootout, which obviously they would have won the penalty yeah. shootout, then effigies would have been hanging from me outside the Arndale Centre in Manchester that very night. It would have been my fault. Well, it, it didn't turn out to be, and it still remains one of the greatest pieces of sports narration that any of us have ever been subject to. Clive, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the Michael Anthony Show. Good chat. Thank you very much indeed. You, Take care. Bye -bye. It's been now many years, my oh, boy. You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take it slow And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine What's it Makes me see the light What about those tears? My eyes, how's it make a fit? Makes me feel alright.